Phil, how do you think the influence of AI is going to affect those in, in sales in a, in a selling role? And the second part to my question is, could AI take over what a salesperson does? Thank you, Will. And um, I was going to throw that question back at you uh, as well, but um, I won't. I'll, I'll give it an answer. I, I mean, I think that sales is um, approaching a kind of new frontier in, in many ways. And I, I, I think uh, traditionally we've seen um, the kind of sales systems and tools that are supporting the salesperson very much being designed I'm talking here about CRM and and other tools, you know, designed to serve management. And I, I, I and and salespeople have, you know, seen these as a as a tool to actually make their life more complicated and more difficult. And I've not come across many organisations who have said to me, "Do you know something? You know, our CRM is wonderful. And I just love spending time keying in information and data to it." And I think I think what's exciting about the future in terms of technology is that we're we're seeing that there are tools now being designed and built which put the salesperson very much at the center of their focus so um that these are tools that can enable a, a salesperson to better predict you know how much income they may be getting from their territories or better respond to uh questions or about an RFP that may be issued. Um, but uh, so no, I think we're I think we're really at an exciting point. And I think uh, you know we we we've got kind of two points of view about um chat GPT. Um, the one is that it's an it's going to be an incredibly useful sales tool in the sense of making it much quicker for salespeople to you know draft emails or do research. I mean it's quite unbelievable the power that this tool has to 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 get data together from different sources, um, but I mean we are all obviously concerned from an educational point of view about um, issues of plagiarism, and to what extent will these technologies start to kind of uh, move into the area of manipulation and not being authentic, which is one of the key sort of values and principles of selling that that so much of our sales um approach is kind of based on so i i, th I think it's going to be an incredibly exciting uh, future actually i think we've just seen the start of it and i think it's really going to revolutionize how salespeople sell i think your your second question was is it going to make the role of sales redundant hmm. or you're saying is it the role of marketing is going to become redundant as well i'm looking at eddie here listening in <laughs> as well so no i i think it's going to make uh make life much easier i think we're going to become more productive in in uh how we do things leveraging these kind of technologies uh so no i'm i'm feeling optimistic about it in fact okay so we we don't need to all find new jobs just yet I don't think so. I mean, I remember being on a on an airplane traveling back from I think it was funny enough, I think in Budapest, where you know, where you recently had your long weekend, Will. And I, I remember sitting next to this uh this lady from um I think she was working for McKinsey. And when I told her what I did for a living, this is going back 20, 25 years, and I said I was in sales. And she said, Why on earth would you want to be in sales? You know, 
you know, uh, sales is going to become redundant soon. And so, um, and, and she was talking about the role of inside sales and taking away from field sales. So, you know, and here we are 20 years later, you know, still sales as a percentage of population is about, you know, about 5% of a nation's population are involved in the sales kind of capacity, either in retail sales or B2B sales. So it's still a massively important area of what we do. But no, I, I think salespeople are going to be enabled actually by the technologies around them. You know, there may be some changes, you know, to the way sales teams are structured. Um, but I think that it's going to help us do more with the resources we've got. You know, there yeah. may be some reduction of headcount. I'm not sure. I think it's still early days, really. I think it um, will impact on salespeople in the sense of the, the skills that they may need to um, develop you know, how to, how to leverage technologies, how to look at data, how to analyze it, how to, um, how to get the most out of say AI in order to meet customer requirements better. Um, because I think the expectation from customers is also going to shift. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's, it's, uh, we've always, um, kind of talked about, you know, what are some of the key skills and competencies required of salespeople and sales leaders and you know we talk about reflective practice um and we have you know we have positioned reflective practice in this world which is changing so quickly um as being you know potentially one of the biggest most important competencies required of salespeople you know how to make sense of what's going on around them and i think that i think you're right i think that you know, these kind of AI tools um, will encourage people to reflect more upon the data that they're able to get hold of very quickly and then make better and informed decisions. So I think this is going to make that particular competence even more important, you know, kind of moving forward. Slightly easier to do because it you don't have to spend so much time researching, you know, source material. You know, it's at your fingertips. So you can spend more time thinking about what sense to make of it and what your response is going to be as a consequence of looking at the data. Yeah, so I think, but but I think we're all at a bit of a early stage learning curve on it. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it how it um, sort of paves the way for the, for a new future. With all the research available, that growth mindset, well being, and the happiness, increasing performance at work. Why do you think organizations still focus primarily and sometimes solely on skills training? Yeah, so that's interesting, uh, an interesting question. There is a lot of, um, what's the word, misconceptions about training that sits quite often with senior sales leaders. I think they've come through perhaps schools or training and development based on what has happened to them in the past and that, um, you know, that they've been on skills training and they've, you know, they've, they've become um, sort of very committed to particular sales methodologies around spin, it might be, or it might be solution selling or, or one of these other methodologies that are around. And so I think that 
in a lot of the decisions about what sort of training should people undertake will come from the personal experience that sales leaders have, have had themselves. And that takes time. You know, that takes time to, to kind of shift. Um, and, and so that's, I think that's one of the reasons that, um, that, that people still focus on skills training. But I, th I think there's also from my experience in the academic world is when you start to look at um, the research that's done by sales academics into, into sales practice, a lot of the frameworks that the academics themselves research tend to be more behavioral than they're more around mindset and values. And I don't think that helps either. So, um, Lee, I, I don't know what to say, but, you know, I, I, I still am amazed at where people's mindsets are, even down to the way they issue RFPs. And, and we ourselves, you know, have found ourselves responding to a request for proposals, which is clearly a skills-based kind of solution that the customer is looking for. And yet every every sinew in our body knows that, you know, that unless you get the mindsets right, unless the values and belief systems are right, it doesn't really matter what you do on skills. Um, it's it's not going to it's not going to work. And so it's uh, yes, it, it, it's an education process, and uh, it takes time, you know, to kind of shift people's perspectives. Um, but like uh, I mentioned, I, I live in hope, you know, <laughs> that uh, that that people will recognise the importance of mindset. I think we're seeing more of it in 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 Harvard Business Reviews, seeing more and more reference of McKinsey's of this world talking about the importance of mindset. And so the conversation is moving away from competencies and skills development into more, have we got the right mindset of, of, of uh, salespeople, you know, in, inside the teams. And I'm a great believer that if the mindset is right, the behaviors will follow um, and they will themselves develop the skills in that area. How do you recommend businesses slash teams split account management and new business development? A lot of sales roles are, are a blend of account management, sales, then internal team management. For me, sales and account management are two different things. And those that excel at new business may not have the mindset to be an excellent account manager. That's an interesting question. Uh, ben, thanks. Uh, thanks for that question. So I think it, there's been some interesting LinkedIn commentary on it as well. Um, I can't remember on a similar question and, you know, no matter whether you're an account manager or new business, you need to have that hunting mindset that's important for new business. And I thought that was quite an interesting take um, that he had. And um, so, so coming back to the first bit of your question about how do you recommend businesses, teams split account management and new business development, what I've seen happen uh, in a lot of the accounts we have is a, is some kind of um, sales portfolio analysis where you start to segment, you, you go through a segmentation process where you start to look at um, the accounts uh, on two sort of axes. One is potential to grow and the other axes is sales volume. And then within those two axes, you're able to sort of group accounts into those accounts which have 
high revenue and high potential for growth. And then you've got those accounts that have high volume, but mid-level, um, if you like, ability to grow. And then you've got some accounts which are high level, but they actually just want a transactional relationship. They don't particularly want an account manager to look after them. It's a transactional focus. I mean, I'm simplifying the segmentation process here a bit. I think that it's important that we start to consider the concept of lifetime value of an account over a period of time and that there are going to be some accounts that are massively important to you that uh, may not be buying so much from you in the future, um, sorry, in the current time frame, um, but are going to be hugely, you know, potential growth accounts in the future. And I think that if you had this um, account management, new business development, if you didn't have those structures, you know, in place, you run the risk of having a rather opportunistic approach to looking after accounts and you run the risk of not being around to support those accounts when they really need your support moving forward. So my take on it is that it is a practice that I would recommend that you would separate the two, um, but that you would through white space analysis have um, this new business development opportunities within your existing accounts that, that would be the focus of your attention as opposed to completely new logos. Um, but how you manage your account, I mean, it's a costly investment to put into account management. So you need to be very careful about balancing the cost of sale and cost of support with the amount of revenue that you're actually generating from the account. I think you may be interested in, you know, maybe we could send it across to Ben, is we have a segmentation analysis uh, sort of framework that, that may be quite helpful as well for you, Ben, Yeah. Uh, to consider how you might segment the different accounts and then uh, and then how you support those accounts. So it's a bit difficult for me to explain on, you know, it's a, it's sort of a matrix that, that yeah. so that might be helpful as well. On your point, Nigel, I... Um, I was working with uh, Compaq um, before they were acquired by Hewlett-Packard. And um, uh, I was working with one of the Compaq account managers that was supporting Vodafone. And um, the Compaq account manager had done a, an amazing job to, to change the relationship with Vodafone uh, from being pretty bad to being very good. And then when HP um, took over Compaq, they decided that they would put the HP account manager in as the lead on the account. And, uh, and Vodafone basically told them to bugger off. <laughs> you know? and, it, and it was all based on the relationship. So I think your point about, you know, often customers have a strong point of view about, um, uh, about the sort of people that they want to sort of support them and how they want to support them. So I think you raised such a good point, you know, in terms of, using the customer customer feedback to influence how you then decide to support them. I was very unhappy that we saw, we've got this question submitted to us. Oh, um, what's that? <laughs> that Gartner Research in 2021 said that 72% of buyers want a sales rep free experience. And in 2022, 
Gartner Research says it's now 83% that B2B buyers would prefer ordering or paying for a service through digital commerce. How, as a salesperson, should I react to this? And how does it influence in the way that I sell now? Yes, it's quite interesting. And, and I think if you dig deeper into that research, uh, I think that it also shows how the age demographic um, is influencing some of that data. Um, I think with the, um, I think it's millennials who are much, much, you know, more digital savvy and, you know, they, they prefer that kind of method perhaps of doing their own research online and not engaging with salespeople. Um, so how as a salesperson should I, I react to this? And I think that it's not all altogether kind of negative in a sense. You know, if it's possible for buyers to buy solutions without having to engage with salespeople, I, I would have thought that, you know, that that's not a bad thing because you're meeting the needs of those buyers um, through a particular type of, of channel, um, which means that the sellers can spend more time, perhaps more quality time, focused on customers who do want that interaction, uh, uh, who do want those kind of relationships. I think what's interesting is that in a world, and we've talked about this quite a bit in the past, in the world that's changing very quickly, buyers don't always have the answers. And the only way they're going to find answers to particular problems that they have is through a heightened um, sense of collaboration and both, both with people from within inside their own companies, but also with suppliers and partners. And this is where I think the role of salespeople is going to sort of develop much more strongly, sort of moving into the future, um, that the kind of skills that are going to be required of salespeople, given that there may be fewer opportunities are going to be the more complex skills of problem solving, collaboration, co-creation. Um, so, yeah, I think as a salesperson, how should you react to this? I think I think that salespeople, you know, need to kind of read the tea leaves. They they need to look for ways of adding more value to the conversations that they have with customers. They perhaps need to be slightly more, um, the word is that's been used is disruptive. They perhaps need to be more proactively creative in the way that they they suggest ideas to customers before they start uh, thinking of finding solutions to problems themselves. So mm. I think it's going to mean that sales are going to have to work harder, you know, to earn their, their bonuses and their commission. Uh, because they're going to have to add a degree of uh, sort of intellectual acumen to the way in which they go about selling and not just wait for the orders to come in, but actually to go out there and find them and make things happen. Um, but I think those that do crack that particular code are going to be enormously successful. It is interesting. And um, McKinsey came out with some interesting um, insight into what is the sort of how how customer expectations are changing and therefore what are the skill sets required for salespeople yeah. um and we've actually you know recently we did a podcast on, on that and it's um and it's interesting because 
customers' expectations are, are as such that they expect a salesperson to be a fantastic kind of problem solver and also, you know, have information to hand at their fingertips uh, because they're already coming into the conversation with a degree of knowledge around what it is you do. Mm -hmm. um, and so all of these kind of elements, I think, add to the uh, the, the competency levels or what is expected for a salesperson. And I think that's going to become more and more um, complex and more specialized, perhaps. Maybe you can comment on where do the most um, most successful sales practitioners um, spend their time and what, what kind of activities do they um what are the most high value activities that a salesperson can do if there's only a set amount of time that we all experience? How should they be structuring or prioritizing their time? I mean, there's some quite interesting um, research done around, you know, where do star sales leaders spend their time versus those that don't uh, reach targets uh, or sort of don't perform quite as well, you know, with their team. So if we start start by just looking at the leadership kind of angle first, then the kind of areas that star leaders tend to spend more time than average sales leaders is going to be around strategizing, territory planning, territory management, making sure that the plans are properly in place. Uh, they'll spend much more time working with their salespeople in early sales, sales cycle opportunities and not just be there for salespeople at the at the you know, when deals are due to be closed, they tend to spend more time coaching their sales teams rather than um, proper coaching as opposed to sort of micromanaging around uh, spreadsheets and and data and statistics. So there's been, you know, quite a lot of research in terms of where, where managers need to be kind of spending their time. When you start to look at the data of how much face-to-face -face time do salespeople spend actually talking to customers, it's it's quite low. I mean, it it varies from sector uh, sector to sector, and you know one must question the amount of non-productive kind of admin time that sales teams seem to be spending their time on, and a lot of that's driven with a micromanagement attitude. Of, of the leaders to whom they report into. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, depending on which level we're talking about, there are different levers that can perhaps be pulled and adjusted. But I, I, I think I'm most excited about the role that some of the emerging technologies will play in making life easier for salespeople to get in front of customers and to you know, spend more of their time doing what, what, what they should be doing, which is, you know, obviously selling to customers. Yeah, Philip agrees. Um, he's just put into chat. Planning is a key area for greater productivity in sales. I also suspect that many companies don't know where their star performers slash leaders spend their time. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, we don't we don't come across um, much current data, um, which goes into this analysis of where time is being spent it tends to be um you know research projects that are carried off maybe once every five years or so we start to see what the stats 
kind of tell us. But I, I agree with you. Yeah, Phil, it's not often that you find organizations are really closely monitoring um, where sales managers spend their time. On the master's program that we run, we get managers to to actually bring to us the data of where they spend their time. And that for us is a a regular source of information and it becomes a debate that we have with the master's cohorts about where they spend their time. And we link it, um, the data they produce to some of the research we've seen in the past, particularly produced by Gartner. Um, and we also link that kind of where you choose to put your time is influenced by, by your values and belief system. So it also links for us around you know, what is the purpose of a sales leader? What kind of results do they want to achieve for their team? How important is it for them to achieve results from everyone in their team moving forward? I just wanted to to pick up on, on one more thing you said, Phil, um, which is around you're really excited about what technology can do um, to, to kind of, I guess, enable salespeople to, you know, referencing back to the productivity i guess um but what have you seen anything recently that you are starting to realize the impact it could potentially have for salespeople? well i don't know if i i can um name any sort of specific um applications if you like but uh, i mean one of the ones that 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 we're beginning to see a lot of value from is is um is IntraHive, which actually measures relationship capital. And the kind of data that we can get from using IntraHive is enabling us to um, recognize the network of contacts we have through um, organizations with whom we deal. I mean, I think, Will, you can probably speak a lot, lot better on this subject than I can because you're much closer to the data. But the kind of example you gave earlier in the conversation about Luke me, meeting up with Lucas was an interesting one, which is perhaps in part influenced by IntraHive. But this is just one, uh, just one, you know, piece of a quite a large jigsaw puzzle. Um, you've got the ability to look at sentiment analysis and conversations to, to perhaps give you a better feel of the propensity of buyers of, products um to buy um, um you can get better data around probability of sale cycles using those kind of technologies which uh which are available and you know i think that that all of these technologies um you know whether it's high spot or HubSpot, and in, in terms of being able to direct your marketing campaigns more in a more focused way all of these are, are there to enable salespeople to become more effective. Um, and I, I really am looking forward to the time when the systems are, are built around the salesperson rather than around the sales manager um, so much. Uh, you know, I think it's if you can make life easier for salespeople to sell, that's got to lead to better productivity. Mm. Um, and for you know, and, and and as a consequence of that, for managers to spend mo much more time looking at data and trends to be able to spot, you know, 
uh, when you look across the sales organization where salespeople perhaps can be better directed or where best practice is happening with a number of your salespeople, perhaps not with others. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I think we're going to see a, a really interesting advancement of technologies that are built specifically to enable salespeople to sell more. So if I can cast your mind back to the last AMA when you were talking about uh, the mindset work that is transforming the performance of the England cricket team. Oh, great talking about cricket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and in particular, the value in mindset change for sports people and how it's you know, easy to detect individuals and teams win much more frequently when they lose, when they have the right mindset. So are we safe from promising sales leaders that sales transformation based on mindset change will result in more deals and fewer losses? Yeah, I, th I, th I think the, the great thing about sport is the fact you can see it sort of happening in front of you. <laughs> it's so obvious where you've got, you know, the same set of players playing under a new coach or a new manager and you know that they're, they're achieving a sort of very very different results and you know that, that that that's not a skill issue or a competence issue that's that's down to i guess strategy in part you know we're going to play this style of game um a mindset you know um and the mindset is you know is one that's also supported with something we've spoken about before on these um these AMAs, I think, is about the psychological safety, allowing people the space to know that if you are playing to this plan and you're you're out there to play an expansive style of cricket, it's okay if you get out first ball. You know, it's okay. You know, we expect that will happen, and so uh, genuinely allowing or creating that sense of look, we're playing to this game plan. Uh, you know, we hope you can score 150 runs, but you might not. <laughs> um, uh, it's, it, you know, it's, it, you know, everyone's in it together and we know what we're trying to do. And, and we've seen that in the transformative uh, sort of cricket team uh, that uh, we spoke about before. I know from the uh, work that we have done on mindsets with control groups in sales that the same applies um, and it may not apply over four or five days of a test match series um, because sometimes sales cycles take much longer to uh, to fulfill um, but uh, I know that where we have worked um, particularly in my you know my doctorate um, thesis was working with different control groups exploring this notion of mindset and measuring the close ratios and cost of sale ratios uh, and market share ratios across teams that worked in Western Europe and Central Europe um, in a market that were, were fairly similar in terms of opportunity um, and seeing an extraordinary difference uh, in sales performance over that period of time. Um, and I've, I've, I've maybe cited this uh, previously, but when we started working with this community of um, sales, there were about 200 salespeople um, in this sort of two groups, if you like. Um, and 
the close ratios at the time were something like one in 15 uh, for winning for 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 a winning sort of reasonably sized deals, some very large. And by the time that we finished the program after two and a half years, and this is published, you know, this is this, you know, this is published evidence and uh, and so on. The close ratios with with were seventy two percent, and um, we contrasted it with the other control group where we hadn't done any intervention around mindset, and we simply sort of tracked their performance as business as usual. And they did improve their win ratios, you know, from one in 15. They ended up with a, a ratio of 33% at the end of uh, the two and a half years. So from a control grouping point of view, it was an absolute test that mindsets can really impact performance. And for me, it it completely changed the way that we started to approach the way we develop salespeople and we develop managers as well. Um it's much easier, I think, to deal with a sales team where the mindsets are in the right place, um, but perhaps where the skill sets aren't where you want them to be, because it's much easier to work on developing skills and competence than it is changing someone's mindset. Um, so I'd much rather get the mindsets in place as the sort of foundation block of any in- any improvement that you might want to make in the selling organization, knowing that, yeah, if people aren't, heads are in the right space, then you can do amazing things with people, you know, rather than those organizations which have incredibly competent people, but they're just demotivated and there's this toxic culture that kind of exists that stops them from thriving. Um but we've seen many instances of managers going in inheriting a group of people who have had brilliant results and uh, using a different type of management approach, completely transforming the the team performance. Um, so we have many, you know many examples of managers who've 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 made this kind of dramatic transformation built around uh, mindsets. And I think a lot of it is about growth mindset. You know, some people, they won't change and uh, they have a fixed mindset as opposed to growth. So growth mindset is incredibly important. But then it's also working on the specific sales mindsets that we, um, you know, very close to our hearts here at at Consalia that we know uh, will produce results. I know in sales, we've, you know, we've always talked about value, you know, based selling. Um, but um, the simple um, discount, understanding the impact of discounting on sales volumes equations, I've found uh, many people in sales don't, don't understand, you know, quite what the implications are. You know, if you give a 10% discount on a margin of a gross profit margin of 25%, how much more do you need to sell in order to make the same gross profit as you did before? You know, when we ask that question in a in a, in a sales conversation, you know, they range from 10% more, you know, you know, to maybe 25. And the answer is 67% more. You know, the, the, you know, often it's very, very few people understand 
you know, that correlation between, you know, price and margin and, and what the impact is on just from a, a sales volume perspective. Um, so I think this is something that, that we're finding increasingly important in today's market. I mean, the other statistics that's rather alarming, and I don't know if this is an indictment of leadership or, or management, is the percentage of salespeople in organizations who hit quota, who hit targets. Um, and, you know, the figures are quite staggering. Sometimes it's sort of, I think, 40% of a client, 40% uh, of a very large sales force hitting targets with, with, with an org organization that we're speaking to recently. And um, you wonder whether at the very senior level, it's just a numbers game, you know, just throw enough salespeople at a problem and, you know, 40% of them will, will sell and uh, maybe help achieve the organization's objectives. And, you know, it doesn't really matter if 60% don't. Um, you know, I've always slightly struggled with that concept, to be honest. Um, but I do know organizations who operate that way, as opposed to leadership teams who judge their success as a leader by the percentage of their sales teams who hit targets and quotas. You know, unless 100% of a team hits target or gets to the winner's circle, they don't feel as though they've done their job as a, a manager or leader. So, yeah, they're, they're very different perspectives on best practice according to the culture and the types of organizations that, uh, that, 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 that we find ourselves working with at times. I, so here's, a, here's another thought, was that if you take the, the context of, of the transformation question that was posed earlier, and you put that in the context of the economic reality of what organizations are need, needing to face. I mean, I, you know, I had, the, um, had a conversation early on today with someone else um, about um, the economic reality of, of the world. So I come back to the connecting with transformation. And, and this lady was saying that, um, and she sits on the Chamber of Commerce uh, in her country and Germany, that a joint Chamber of Commerce that she was uh, on the board of. And they were talking about, you know, the challenges and the prevailing winds that organizations have right now with, you know, demand. And um, and she was saying that she felt that it's becoming more difficult for selling organizations to really uh, be relevant. And she was saying that they've had a couple of regular customers who they have a really good relationship with expecting that a deals would be closed in Q1 of this year. And they simply have not. And then she's gone back to these customers and said, how come? We know you really well. Uh, how come you've delayed it? And um, the customers were saying to her, well, actually, your selling organization simply has not articulated the business relevance in the context of the world in which we are now working, which is changing by the quarter almost, and that your solution simply aren't relevant right now. And that, that sort of hurt, hurt her, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, we we're having the discussion about whether the um, market dominance that some of these organizations have in their market sometimes lead them to being slightly complacent. Um, and that, um, you know, 
you know, by being complacent, they're not asking the right questions, they're not keeping close enough to customers. So I suppose I'm coming back to this topic of transformation. It's made me question whether in markets which are tough and, you know, we're talking about economic crises, you know, listening to Credit Suisse at the moment, who've had X billion pounds taken out of their accounts in the last in the last month, I think it was in Christmas. It was extraordinary, over 100 billion, you know. Um you know, when you've got financial markets that are being stress tested and 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 supply markets being tested by uh, sort of energy, does do companies default back to you know their original levers for driving growth? And is that something which is fit for purpose moving into the future? And uh, so we had quite an interesting conversation about about the economic reality of today forcing, in this case, this particular person to question assumptions she had been making about the efficacy of her own sales organization. Um, and that, you know, she was beginning to question, how do we get this shift in mindset, you know, from the selling organization? How do we change perceptions? And I'm sure the answer is not going to be, we give them a better bonus. Yeah, it's going to be something else. I think I now know the answer, but can um, commission structures and bonus um, lead to transformation? I I, th- I really think they can support transformation. I don't know if they should lead it. I don't think the simple, you know, in this example that I've given you, if the organization that he was leading um, simply relied on a new bonus structure to get them from where they are to where they need to be, they simply wouldn't get there because they need to do something more profound than just looking at uh, the change on a behavioral level. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they need to kind of uh, dig deeper. You know, I was, I was quite interested. Again, we, we meet some fascinating people on the podcast that we run. And the last, uh, I think, uh, I've, uh, one of the podcasts we did was around the strategic narrative. And I really enjoyed the conversation with Andy Raskin, who was talking about changing the art of conversation at the point of sale, and um, uh, and he was really making the point that we've really got to um, articulate our point of difference um, through a different type of um, a strategic engagement, and he gave the example of. Benioff and um, and um, uh, sales Salesforce and and he was using as an example that when Salesforce sort of entered the market, he didn't come in trying to compete one CRM system against another. He came in saying that why would you on earth wouldn't you want to do a cloud based solution rather than uh, sort of an on premise solution. Uh, because this is the way the world is going and you don't want to be left behind. And so the the narrative that you have, the way in which you sell um, uh, that particular story um, is a is potentially a, a, a mindset shift because you are not moving away from on-premise licensing features, advantages, benefits to, a completely new way of of doing business. 
Uh, and so for organizations having to make, you know, that that was an example of what I would describe as, as transformation because it it's going deeper than just um, leveraging, you know, financial models to sell more. I just want to come back to the management angle to begin with, because I think so many of these issues are not just with the mindset of the selling organization, but the mindset of the manager. And we have got examples of some of our students who have inherited a poor performing sales teams selling in a market which is tough and where the performance across all of the salespeople have not only exceeded target, but exceeded target by a percentage that enables those salespeople to go to winner's circle. This has been achieved, and this may be part of the answer that we could talk about in terms of this proof of concept. This has been achieved by a sales leader who has an absolute passion about the way that they want to be recognized as a leader. So they want to be recognized as a leader, not just by getting one person in the team hitting the sales targets to achieve his overall team target, but every single person in the team doing the same. So they do not regard themselves as a great leader unless all the people cross the line and hopefully some of those people crossing the line extraordinarily well. So I think a lot of it starts with the vision of the sales leader. And then I think it's linked to a topic that I know, Ian, that you're really passionate about, which is coaching. And it's actually looking at how it's having a frame of mind and a mindset driven around recognizing people's potential and then having a powerful coaching concept methodology in order to coach the individuals through all of the different activities needed to maximize sales performance. So this combination of a personal vision coupled with coaching support and ability are two incredibly important factors at a management level. And then I think you mentioned, Ian, the research that we've done around selling mindsets. We've seen some extraordinary improvements in performance by salespeople adopting the four winning mindsets as we've defined it. And over a period of time, depending on the sales cycle of the client producing extraordinary performance, whether it's in a quarter or whether it's over a two-year period. Yes, I mean, we would obviously recommend a culture in a sales organization that's built around the four differentiating mindsets of authenticity, client-centricity, proactive creativity, and tactful audacity, coupled with a manager who has a vision to really want every single person in the team to perform well with exceptional coaching skills. I think that combination is an ideal combination to maximize performance and hopefully increase the stats in favor of 100% of salespeople meeting quota. 
So yes, we have got evidence. We have got published case studies to that effect. It's interesting when things aren't going well, you said you tend to go down to the sort of, you know, what's the root cause of, you know, why is it that we're not actually hitting targets? And so in the absence of results, you can't look at results. You simply got to look at, well, what is the team doing? And yes, he did a lot of quite sort of forensic work in asking the sales team to track the activities that they were doing and to whom and what level of the organization are these people selling to? What kind of discussions are going on with the people that they have been meeting? And what were the outcomes of those discussions? So his conversations were very much based on what did you do? Who did you do it with? And what was the outcome? So there were just three simple things that he asked each of the salespeople day in, week out, in order to understand the correlation between activity and result. So he wasn't in interested in results. Well, results weren't there. He was simply focused on the what we refer to as leading indicators that would lead to results later. So this kind of analysis of activity was another yeah, thanks for raising the question, Well, or the point, was another factor that he looked at because it linked very much with coaching. How do you know how to coach people when you don't have a deep understanding of what it is that they do? And we often find when we're talking to sales managers on the master's programs that we run is they when they start to talk about the cadence of coaching, you know, that, and it's very much linked to sort of quarterly pipeline and they very much get all forecasts and perhaps pipeline forecast, meaning what do they forecast in current quarter versus pipeline maybe more future looking, but it's quite clear that the majority of conversations that take place is around what we would call lagging indicators. And I think this is a big mistake and leads to the fact that People lose sight of what it is they need to do to generate results. They get fixated on the performance. But in a way, you can't blame the sales managers, you know, about doing this because they get pushed and shoveled around performance all the time by their senior execs. So they're given, if you like, the culture of the organization and the things that get discussed at those sort of QBR meetings are so results orientated that there's no real emphasis in looking at what it is that drives results. I don't know if I've rambled on a bit. So yeah, Ian, I think it's a combination of the selling mindsets that we've got so much evidence to show that if salespeople adopt these selling mindsets, they will be in what we've called the winner's circle and much higher probabilities of closing opportunities. But I don't think we can underestimate either the importance of the role of the sales manager and the sales leadership to provide the right coaching support for them as well. I remember we had one of the stories that I really love is we had a group of managers going on the sales transformation masters program. And one of the managers, he was based in Columbia. And he was confronted with a big challenge. He worked for Sony Mobile. 
of course they had a huge amount of competition from the other handset suppliers and the regulators in Colombia were trying to block the sale of smartphones because they felt that economically it wasn't good for the country. And they wanted to make the accessibility of smartphones more, you know, the lower end handsets so that more of the population could buy them. And this would have had a disastrous effect on the Sony market share. And so what he did, and this happened within a three-month period, was he adopted the proactive creativity and tactful audacity mindset. And he went back to the regulators and he challenged them on the logic of the regulations that they were about to implement throughout the country. It took a lot of courage to be able to go to the regulators and say, hang on, I think you may have made a mistake here. Can I have some of your time to rethink this? And he'd done a lot of work on looking at the economic ROI and such that the regulators agreed that they wouldn't block the sale of high-end smartphones. And as these conversations were going on with Sony and the regulators, Sony preempted the fact that they would not introduce this legislation and that the market would be open for the sale of these smartphone handsets. So they stocked up, they had the stock ready, they entered the Christmas period, which is the biggest opportunity for handset sales is over the Christmas period. And the other handset manufacturers had depleted their stock of handsets, so they didn't have any stock or much less stock. And within the space of two or three months, Sony increased their market share in Colombia from something like 8 to 17%. And this was done based on taking those mindsets that we know so much about of tactful audacity and proactive creativity and implementing it in a sales approach. But I love this story because of its innovation, inventiveness, courage, and of course, business impact was amazing. Yep, and of course it's been published in the Journal of Sales Transformation. Mm -hmm.